Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is a joy with Anne-Marie Horton in Rome. It is a entirely appropriate that Maria Tadeo is with us, and she's from one of truly the most famous embassy buildings in the world. It is the Palazzo Farnese, and it is the jewel of the 16th century. And Maria, I would suggest that Mr. Macron, the people of France, have to spend zillions of francs every year keeping it in wonderful restoration. <laughs> they probably do, but you know, the French do have a knife for beauty. And on that note, we are going straight uh, with our guest, Bruno Le Maire. Always nice to see you, French finance minister. You have an important meeting, but before we go into uh, the economics, I want to talk about the politics. Your president, Emmanuel Macron, is meeting with President Biden. The last time they met together was a very different scenario than the submarine crisis happened. Are you making peace this time, or are you still angry? No, no, we are in the process to uh, make peace, of course. Uh, we have been disappointed. Everybody is aware of that. But now this is uh, the first step in the way of uh, rebuilding trust and confidence between the United States and France. And wh what's that going to entail? Is there anything specifically that will come out of the meetings? I know you don't we speak on behalf of... Uh... So uh, I will attend a meeting with President Biden and President Macron. But let's wait some uh, minutes before... Uh, explaining anything about this meeting. Okay, and uh, you're also very involved in the OECD deal, the 15% corporate minimum tax. We know that this is something you've worked on for years. It finally does seem like it will be agreed in Rome this weekend. How about the implementation, however? In real life, how do you put it to work? It is a key agreement, and now the key question is implementation. Mm -hmm. So we will do our best as the next uh, EU presidency, the fr France will have the EU presidency, to implement the two pillars of this international taxation, digital taxation and minimum taxation. Our goal is to have this international taxation system being fully implemented no later than 2023. And what's your message to Facebook, Google? Is it prepared to pay more? They have to pay. So how much more? And, and, they are powerful, they are making profits. They have to pay. This is fairness. And you think they get that now? I think they get that, but let's have a look at the consequences of the COVID crisis and the economic crisis. Facebook, Google, and all the digital giants are the big winners of this crisis. So it's fair that they have to pay their due level of taxes. And, you know, you mentioned the economic recovery. We are seeing in Europe that it is speeding up, but we do have problems on the supply chain. I know that's something that you say you're also concerned in terms of the big French names that operate globally. How big an issue is the shortage economy? Do you buy into this theory that we're heading into a period of tight, very tight supply? very good news on the economic recovery. You know that the last figure for France for the third quarter of the year is 3% of growth, which means that we will reach our goal of having 6 point. 25% of growth. And we already have recovered the same level of growth than the one we had before the crisis. So that's excellent news. The economic recovery is quick, it is rapid, and it is solid. Then we are facing the negative consequences of this rapid economic recovery, bottlenecks, 
shortages on the labor market, on the semiconductors, on the raw materials, it might affect the level of growth over the next month and over the next years. It means that we clearly need all the G20 countries to address the issue and to find very concrete solutions to these bottlenecks. And of course, feeding into this is the debate around inflation. Yesterday, uh, Christine Lagarde, who used to do your job in, in the past, she said it's, it's heating up, but it's temporary. The factors are pushing up inflation will fade away. Do you buy her theory? Yes, I, I fully share her point of view. I think it is temporary inflation. Nevertheless, once again, we should be very careful about this question of bottlenecks. Let's just have a look at the question of semiconductors. Now you have the automotive industry being directly hit by the lack of semiconductors, which means that the right solution, and we share the same point of view as the one expressed by President Biden, is to be more independent. President Macron made it very clear. We want Europe to be more independent, to invest in new factories, so that we can have our own semiconductors, not being too much dependent on Asia, on South Korea, or other nations. And, and Europe has made that very clear, too. I want to also follow up on the, the ECB question. I know you don't want to talk about the central bank, but yesterday we did see markets pricing that there will be an interest rate hike by the end of next year in Europe. Is that premature? Does this economy still need more stimulus? Is the market reading it wrong? I think that we have to go step by step. The first step was to protect our salaries and our companies against the most important crisis since 1929. Second step, the economic recovery. We are successful on the economic recovery. That's very good news for all of us, the United States and Europe. The third step will be to come back to sound public finances, but we should not hurry up in coming back to sound public finances. Otherwise, you run the risk of killing growth. And the best response to the economic crisis is more growth, sustainable growth for all the people. And just a very final question. Energy, this is a big conversation in Europe. We're seeing the bills are going through the roof. Your government has announced measures to help ease that on households. Are you willing to work more with Russia, perhaps, on that front? Or does it prove the case that nuclear energy is the French way, is actually valid? It proves the case that nuclear energy is one of the best solutions if you want to be dependent on Russia and on Vladimir Putin, that's your choice. That's not my choice. My choice is to have France and the European countries being totally independent, which means investing more in nuclear energies, investing more in renewable energies so that we can have a mix which makes Europe fully independent from the other countries. So perhaps uh, more, more French, uh, less German, at least on the energy. On energy, course. more French rather than German, yes. Okay, well, Bruno Le Maire, thank you so much you. Uh, for your time. We always like seeing you, and I hope the meeting with uh, the Treasury Secretary goes well. I hope to. Thanks so much. Thank you. Tom? Maria Tadeo, thank you so much. On radio and television worldwide, Maria Tadeo from the Embassy of the Republic of France in uh, Rome. With a reset view on the American economy with Bank of America, Michelle Meyer uh, joins us right now. Michelle, what have you done to reset off of 2% yesterday? 
Um, so we were tracking right around 2%. So it came in pretty close to expectations given all the high frequency data that we were looking at. Um, and we are holding to our view that the fourth quarter should show a rebound. We're seeing stronger signs of consumer spending. When we look at our aggregated um, card data, we're seeing a really healthy um, move higher in spending with um, the services economy re-engaging um, with potentially an early start to the holiday shopping season. So we think we're going to see stronger consumer spending into the fourth quarter, business investment continuing, and some further contribution from inventories. There's a while to go in terms of that inventory cycle. So our forecast is 6% real GDP growth in Q4, okay. which is, again, a nice pickup from the third quarter. Major inside baseball. Michelle Meyer, how can you count inventories with the upset yeah. of supply shock? Okay, so this gets wonky, as you can expect, but for it's GDP wonky Friday, that's okay. Let's just do it. For GDP calculations, it's the change in the change in inventories. So if you're simply contracting by less, it's actually a positive contribution for GDP growth. And that's what we saw in the third quarter. Inventories were still down, but not as down as they were in the second quarter. So that added two percentage points to GDP growth. So we, we're so far away from a point where we're actually adding to inventory levels, but simply subtracting less will support the GDP adding up process. Going forward, spending will be a key issue. Wages, a key issue. We just got some spending data. How much does that enlighten us about what happened with the third quarter GDP reading and what we can expect going forward? Absolutely. I think the consumer is very much what we should be paying attention to. And Lisa, as you noted, it's important to understand the money in and the money out, right? So I 100% agree with you that the wage data this morning was by far the most important statistic. That was a big increase in the employment cost index. Um, and that shows that there's more purchasing power for the consumer, but it also tells us that there's more inflationary pressure building in the broader economy. Businesses will be able to pass more of those costs on. They're doing it, we're seeing in terms of these price pressures. Um, but I think the, the big picture for the consumer is that there's a, still a lot of cash out there. There's a lot of availability to borrow to the extent that that's necessary. We are seeing some pickup in um, spending on credit cards amongst lower income consumers. Um, and the savings rate, although coming down in today's report is still pretty elevated. So I think to the extent that consumer Consumers have items to buy, are feeling comfortable re-engaging in the services economy. We will see that play out in the data, even if it means coming with more price pressure. Michelle, let's just sit on that employment cost index for a minute, because I just yeah. uh, did the data, and this is actually the highest read ever in data going back yeah. to the 1990s. I mean, this is a shocking increase yeah. in wages, in how much is uh, labor is demanding. What does this mean yeah. in terms of the stickiness of inflation and, frankly, the response from central bankers as the Fed meets next week? Yeah, so the employment cost index is the Fed's preferred measure of wages. So they can look past some of the noise in the average hourly earnings numbers because of composition issues, et cetera. But employment cost index, they pay a lot of attention to, and this is a big number. And it's very much consistent with what we're seeing in terms of the, the high quit rate, the high amount of job openings, the fact that purchasing power has shifted to the employee. Um, and we're seeing that in terms of these labor costs. So when you have wage growth of this magnitude, especially if it proves to be persistence, the key word, um, it, it pushes, you know, you get this wage price push into broader prices. And that sets up for a much more 
of a sticky path higher of inflation. And the Fed is going to pay very close attention to that. Well, and obviously we'll be watching the Fed decision on Wednesday next week. But then on Friday, we have a jobs report. And given some of those labor market dynamics that Lisa was referring to, what are you expecting to see from the month of October, given September took us all by surprise in many ways? So we think we will see an acceleration. We're looking for 450,000 non-farm payroll growth um, in the next report, which is a nice pickup from the last two months, but not quite to the levels that we were prior to the pandemic. And I think one of the key components within the report will be the labor force participation rate, whether or not we're seeing a move back of supply into labor market, because that's absolutely critical in order to stem some of the inflationary pressure and also keep this business cycle going. You know, we're dealing with very large supply side constraints and Mm -hmm. any sign that that's opening up or creating some relief is Mm -hmm. going to be critical. Michelle, thank you so much. Michelle Meyer, Bank of America, with us for a briefing. Everyone really changing and adjusting here, folks. I really can't say enough about house to house. Right now, we monitor your problems in the fixed income market. And there's no one better to do that with George Borey, who writes brilliantly clear research notes. George, you go all calculus on us and say, get over it. We're seeing a deceleration in the fixed income market. Explain that. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Tom. Good morning. Um, the, you know, what we're seeing is it is a deceleration in, in the bond market. You know, we've seen a pretty big move over the last week or so at the long end of the curve. Uh, as bond yields have dropped, um, and the curve is flattened. Uh, the cur- curve is flattened pretty meaningfully, and very, very importantly, we've seen a, a, a mild inversion out at the very long end between the 20-year and the 10-year, ten-year uh, point on the curves. And and people have rushed to assume that this is now sort of a meaningful indicator uh, that we're headed for a hard landing. Um, and I think that's that's kind of getting a little bit ahead of the curve, as they say. Um, and, and the reality is, is that there, there are tremendous technicals that, that drive uh, fixed income markets. It's, it's the, the shape of the curve. One of the best indicators you can look at for sort of the direction of the economy, the direction of growth, and, and ultimately markets. And a flattening curve usually kind of raises some alarm bells. But, but when we look at the curve, what we see is a curve that's actually is, is actually what's called, you know, what we would call, you know, a bear flattener. Yields are moving incrementally higher. It's not one direction and it's not universal, but they are moving higher. And so the fact that yields overall are moving higher while the curve flattens, that underscores to us a message that the economy is decelerating. It's not headed for a hard landing that the economy is still doing well. We saw yeah. kind of a soft patch in the in the in the third quarter, uh, as we saw yesterday. But the uh, the underpinnings of demand are very robust. Yes, supply constraints are impacting growth. George, but the end user is still pretty healthy. Yeah, I, Lisa. I like the discrepancy that you make, or, or sort of the distinction that you make between heading toward recession, careening off a cliff, and just slowing yeah. down, which is what pretty much everyone expects to see. But a lot of this is predicated on central banks raising rates sooner than they say they will. Do you buy that story that the market is telling, or do you buy what central bankers are trying to tell us? <laughs> Well, I, I think that the market is, is certainly testing the limits of the central banks. And, and I think what the central banks have told us is they are, again, using the yield curve as, a, as an example, they definitively want to be behind the curve. They're going to let the market move ahead and ultimately sort of guide where they need to be. Now, you, you, can, de- you can debate whether or not the market's getting ahead of itself. 
you know, current levels of inflation are quite high by historical standards and are remaining higher than, than people would have expected. But there is a good chance that they do start to decelerate as well as we get into next year. Supply, supply side constraints don't last forever. They do start to get some level of relief. And so, you know, the, I think the market is sort of pressure, pressuring the, the sort of the limits of the Fed. The Fed's been very clear. They're going to, you know, they, they plan to start to taper. We're going to hear from them next week. And then, you know, that will sort of set the stage for 2022. Other central banks around the world are already in motion. And so the reality is, is that sort of the extreme liquidity that's been in the market now for, you know, 18 months or so, you know, is starting to uh, come out and is starting mm -hmm. to decelerate. But we're going from extreme, extreme liquidity to less liquidity. So it's not negative. It's not tightening. It's just less. But is there a tipping point? And I think this is what people are looking at when they say yeah. things like a hawkish dawn, the idea that there's this similar kind of sentiment in central banks around the world where you saw all yields go down for years together globally uh, in tandem. Yeah. And now we're starting to see it move in the opposite direction in tandem. Could we reach a tipping point where it starts to accelerate on itself and people start to try to normalize rates with something more akin to inflation and growth? We could reach a tipping point. I think that's a fair point. Uh, it's and, and I think this is sort of the, the, the game of cat and mouse between markets and between central bankers. You know, I think our, our, our view is that 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 the Fed is trying to recalibrate fixed income markets. I mean, they see the same data we do. And so, you know, sort of moving yields higher, allowing yields to move higher, to be more in sync with both inflation and growth is, is effectively one of their objectives, but they can't let it move too far too fast. Your point about a tipping point is that do central bankers lose control of the plot? Do they allow or do they, uh, are they unable to sort of control the pace of the move? So far, that has not been the case. And so and, and that's sort of exactly what we're seeing right now is that, you know, there is still very, very strong technicals, goods, technical support within the fixed income market. There's a chronic shortage of duration globally and, and sort of liability managers, pension funds, insurance companies and mm -hmm. others still move to sort of try and immunize their liabilities. It's not a value trade. It's, it's, a, it's a requirement. They need to buy duration. And so when you get to a point like we are now, stock markets at all time highs, we're heading into year end, you sell some stocks, you buy some bonds, you immunize your liability. Those, those are yeah. very strong technicals that we think keep this market in check. The big picture, bond yields are moving higher. I mean, that's, that's our central case. It's a matter of pace. So then George, what's the read through to credit? Have we seen the tights? Yeah, I, we do think we've seen the tights, actually, um, you know, and, and what we've seen in historical uh, you know, periods is that one central bank policy does start to change, you know, sort of it becomes more of a carry trade than a compression trade. And that's very consistent with what we've seen over the last couple of months. Now, that carry trade can last years, many years in some instances. So it, it is mm -hmm. a little bit dangerous to get too far ahead of the curve, again, <laughs> using the curve <laughs> as the analogy. But, but importantly, you do start to move your portfolio around. You start to move up in quality. You start to move sort of down in sort of what we call spread duration, so slightly shorter maturities. Right. You try to sort of buffer yourself against those potential spikes mm -hmm. in volatility. But it is still much too early to just simply cut and run. You know, we can find well, good value in places like structured credit. We want mm, predictable cash flows. and We want to try and minimize right. George, that, that, that volatility. George, I'm way out ahead of you on the boring continuum. I'm in the triple leverage all cash fund, so I'm bringing, <laughs> I'm bringing the duration in. George Bory, thank you so much. Not enough time. Thank you. It was far gone. 
Jeff Clements, partner and chief investment strategist at Brown Brothers Harriman, joining us right now. I would love to get your sense, Scott, what you make of the volatility on the front end of the yield curve across the world, bleeding into the longer end over the past few days when there really hasn't been a major identifiable catalyst. And I think you're right. What we're seeing is just a reflection of continued uncertainty in the economy. The, the big sort of 100,000 foot lesson of the last 18 months is that for all of its volatility, the economy, financial markets are pretty finely tuned. And when you dislocate them as COVID did for the past 18 months, complex <clears throat> systems do not heal quickly. And in almost any data series you look at, be it the bond market, be it inflation, uh, GDP, the labor market, anything is still showing these signs of uh, fibrillation, and that's going to take some time to sort out. So right now, the bond market is being pushed and pulled between, what do I believe, a 2% GDP growth figure for the third quarter that we got yesterday, or do I believe that inflation is the new normal? And I think we're going to see more of this volatility on a daily basis as bond market participants sort those issues out. Scott Clemens, Brown Brothers Harriman goes back almost as far as the setting of the obelisk in St. Peter's Square. It's a venerable <laughs> and ancient firm. Your guy's idea of short term is three years. I'm going to even say the BBH rule is short term is five or 10 years. How do our listeners and viewers invest for a true BBH long term? Um, you focus on the fundamentals and you accept the notion that price volatility is a feature of financial markets. It is not a bug. If anything, I have been surprised that we haven't had more volatility in financial markets over the past 18 months. We're, we're getting a little bit now in the bond market. We had a little bit in the, uh, the equity markets in uh, September. To me, the incoming tide, the real driver of the equity market in particular, is the growth we're seeing in corporate earnings and, and furthermore, the growth in profitability of corporate earnings. That's fundamental. That's not day-to-day -day price volatility. Yeah. That's the fuel that drives markets forward. And I think that's sort of an undertold story driving markets forward on a secular basis, not to deny the, the likelihood even of short-term volatility in prices. Well, let's talk about those earnings because things were going well. And then two of the biggest companies out there, <laughs> Apple and Amazon, had big disappointments after the bell. If tech isn't leading the way, what does that mean for the broader equity market? Well, Kaylee, it's certainly something that worries me because the markets have become so top heavy in a handful of very familiar names that, that, that we all and all your viewers know about, that a stumble in some of those very large names like Apple or like Amazon, for example, uh, could dent the markets just by virtue of them being such a large representation in the markets. Uh, here, here, too, we're cautioning our investors to look through that headline volatility. And we're active investors, so we can choose to avoid some of those large uh, names in technology and find those companies that have been left behind and those companies that have certain characteristics that we think will see them through thick and thin, almost no matter where we are in the economic cycle or where we are in the market cycle. But as a potential source of near-term price volatility, Absolutely. Some of these large technology stocks stumbling for one reason or another is a potential source of price volatility at the index level. Scott Clemens, a personal note, and I really would love you to speak to this. Ground zero of all that we invented here with Bloomberg on the economy and Bloomberg surveillance is 1907 in the structure of American finance. You are on the board of the Morgan Library 
And there is that study of J.P. Morgan's from 1907 when he saved this nation by simply writing a check. What is it like for you, so active with the Morgan Library, to be in that room where we began our modern finance? Well, Tom, you you and your producers have done their homework, and thank you for noting that. It is remarkable, and, and my, the advice that I give to young investors, professional or amateur everywhere, is to study history. Because although regulations change, markets change, in, in interest rates change, the Fed changes, human nature is immutable. And the human nature that drove the panics of the 1900, the 19th century and the early 20th century still happen today. It's greed, it's lust, it's fear, it's anxiety, it's desire. In rereading that history, in 1907 in particular, and the actions that Mr. Morgan took in that library, which looks just as it did in 1907, yeah is a wonderful testimony to how fragile this economy is, but in the long run, how durable it is as well, because here we still are. Scott Clements, thank you so much with Brown Brothers and Harriman. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.